thank you for joining us for another episode of What Do You Think About X, a show aimed at highlighting insightful points of view and posing some deeper questions along the way. As always, if you want to continue the conversation, you can find us on Twitter at AboutXPodcast, or if you'd like to catch our other episodes or share any of this content, you can find us on most popular podcasting platforms. In this episode, Neil Logan is talking to us about entrepreneurship and the impact it can have on wider society. Neil is the CEO of Incremental Group, board member of Edinburgh Business School, and a senior enterprise fellow at the University of Strathclyde. Welcome back to another Hi, episode. I, mean, I, I thought I was doing it. <laughs> oh, don't, uh, don't start off on an argument. Don't, don't start off on an argument. <laughs> oh, nah, go on, go on. Uh, oh, is that all right? Sorry, yeah, yeah, go on. So, so, oh, One day we'll do this professionally. Um, so, yeah, sorry about that. Um, welcome back to another episode of What Do You Think About X? This week's topic is entrepreneurship and the local economy, and we're very lucky to be joined by Neil Logan. Well, thanks, Adam. Yeah, great to be here, guys. Thanks for asking me along. Uh, it should be an entertaining chat. It's always interesting to talk about entrepreneurship because I think there's a lot of a lot of guff spoke about that <laughs> subject. Uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll maybe puncture some of that, or maybe add more guff to it. Who knows? Uh, yeah, and I'm quite passionate about all things local as well. So, yeah, should be an interesting topic. So for those that aren't familiar with Neil, he is CEO of Incremental Group. He's been on the board of Edinburgh Business School, recently appointed Senior Fellow of Entrepreneurship at Strathclyde Business School, amongst your many other accolades. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, the business school stuff I'm, st- I'm still doing. Uh, over in Edinburgh, so that's that's interesting. I've been there now. I think I'm coming to the end of my term uh, now with those guys. That that's been great. Uh, the fellowship thing at Strathclyde is just getting off the ground. Actually, uh, they're making quite a big push in terms of entrepreneurship and what that means. And that's my uh, alma mater. So it, it's nice to get back and help those guys. What is that bad? Uh, is that rain? It is rain. That's rain. Wow. <laughs> I was, was going to wow. say. Does that mean it's heading this way, Adam, given where you are and where I am? It's like Jeez, it's oh. inside. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, mate, it's, it's a washout. <laughs> I was going to say that, actually, because, uh, so, you know, I'm quite interested in. Because you you know this is the sort of the big you get the big corporate message right we're integrated in our local communities and stuff like that ah. and I and and that you know well, the corporate responsibility stuff so I'm interested in, in that kind of relationship but I'm really also immediately I sort of I feel like I want to ask you because I don't what is entrepreneurship like actually <laughs> stupidity bottled I think <laughs> it's I think yeah that's a yeah, entrepreneur. What is entrepreneurship? It, I, I think it's. I think it, it it's a sort of yearning or a desire. It, it's quite a it's a strange thing. So I, I was trying to I was trying to explain this. So when so so a wee bit in my history. So I was with a, a global multinational, 
as well, a big defence company. And they were a great business to be part of. Huge, hundred and hundred and fifteen thousand people or something. Huge. I was down in London, had quite a big team that I was responsible for, you know, six, seven hundred people. Uh, you know, that big that it becomes, you know, unfathomable. You know, how can you affect that many people in a job and stuff? And you know, and and there kind of came this strange point where I was like, well, I I want to go build something, right? I want to go create something. I want to go create something from scratch. And I think that that's quite a, a a kind of cliched thing to do, but that that was true for me. But it burned that I wasn't doing that. So it. it I get asked, once we kind of got incremental off the ground, I did one of these funny, uh, like, in the paper it looks like it's an interview, but it's not. They basically send you a questionnaire and you fill it in and they make it sound like an interview in the paper. And it was, the final question was, what's the one bit of advice you'd give to any budding entrepreneur? And my one bit of advice is, don't do it. Because if I can talk you out of it, mm. that's good. Because it is a world of pain and suffering. And, the, and it's pain and suffering not because it's not, you know, that there's things about being a business leader, being an entrepreneurial business leader that are great, that are terrific things. But there's, there's things that are out with your control. I mean, you're trying to start a business you know, a lot of businesses fail and it is through nothing that the that the founders have done. It's just bad luck, bad timing, got to market too late, got to the market too early, you know, somebody did this, somebody liked that person and not you. It, there's so many variables that are out with your control. It's quite a, I think you need to be quite bloody minded. And I think it's just, if you've got a burning desire to build something, I think that's what entrepreneurship is. And there's this kind of strange thing, Simon, as well now, for the, they talk about entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship and what's the difference and stuff. For me, entrepreneurship is just about wanting to build things, really. That's mm -hmm. that's the meat of it. And having a burning desire to do it to, to such an extent that you're prepared to risk financial ruin to do it that's all quite interesting to me and i don't want to derail these like nice questions that as has also got loaded up i, I just i just wanted because I, I when you said that i just wanted to ask because partly because of my ignorance of it but also your answer has been a really interesting because it's it's i mean i was expecting you to say you know it's about making money or it's about you know but actually you, you've sort of described it like this sort of i don't know this sort of psychological need like there's a distinction yeah. here maybe between labor and work right that's a kind of Hannah Arendt thing you know labor is just something you have to do but but work is something that you you're doing it but you're also cultivating something about yourself or, or producing yeah. or creating something yeah. but there's also like so that so, so that kind of image of the entrepreneur as this sort of venture capitalist you've, you've started from a really different place but also the point about all these things being out of outside of your control again seems to explode that image of the entrepreneur as just you know the success is always 100% of your own doing right and there's never any kind of variables either way that could impact yeah. that 
Yeah, that's the that's the thing that frustrates the hell out of me. Right? When people talk about entrepreneurship and indeed talk about success. You know, the and this will be dreadful, I'm gonna bad mouth someone who's got a, a terrific reputation, but but here we go. So Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson's got a book out about leading, right? And you know, Alex Ferguson being the 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 greatest football manager of his generation and probably every other generation, his ability to date, incredible, right? But when you read the book, there's this strange thing that comes across you, and I've had it when I've met very, very successful entrepreneurs. We're talking people that have made hundreds of millions of pounds, and personally, and when you, what Ferguson fails to realise is the impact that, that luck has in his success. And I, I do think a thing about becoming an entrepreneur is, you, certainly for me, I realised very quickly that, you know, I think I've got, some, I've got some basic formula in my head that says, right, in order to be successful, you need to have a score of 51 out of 100 you need to hit 51. And you can get 50 points through your own effort and 50 points through external circumstance. So if I do everything perfect, I don't need much luck, but I still need some. But equally, if I'm extremely lucky, I can be pretty gash. You know, the quality of my work can be pretty poor. And that's that's the equation. You know, but what people seem to think about entrepreneurship and indeed demon entrepreneur successes or not it's what the score is at the end of the day and that's the thing that I'm, I'm, if you define yourself like that, that's a very painful and it, I think ultimately unfulfilling world that you find yourself in I think you've got to say right, okay I've got a burning desire to do this, if I work as hard as I can, I just need a wee bit of rubber the green and I can be I can, I can achieve the things I want to achieve, but it's not all within control. And yeah, I think once you come to that realization, it's never just about the money. Mm-hmm. Because if it was, if it was just about the money, for me, I would have stayed where I was. You know, I was, I was making good cash. It, it was a great company. It was a, it was a good life. You know, I made enough money. You know, instead, what did I do? I quit my job. My wife was at that point. 12 weeks pregnant with our first child. Uh, I just bought a stupid car. I just moved house. Uh, and so everything was on the line. And for, let me get this right, for 15 months I didn't make a penny. Not a penny. Come in the door for the business. If it was just about money, you wouldn't risk You wouldn't risk that level. Because, you know, we risked everything as a as a family. We risked everything for it. Begs the question: What was it about then? It was about building something. It was about creating something. And it was also about there's a strange thing that happened to me anyway. About it's funny how there's things in your life that can motivate you at, at life events. And for me, it was becoming a dad in a strange sort of way. And I remember speaking to my own father, and he was he was sort of saying to me, "Look, son, you know." you've got a great job, 
you know, at that time they wanted me to go to America. I, I could see what my path was going to be. It seemed like Jill's pregnant. Maybe need to think about you know what you're doing. And I was like, yeah, but what what sort of man am I going to be in ten years' time? Mm. When Elliot says to me, that's my son, says to me, Dad, you know, wh- wh- what did you want to be? What did you want to do? And I look at him and say, well, I really wanted to build, I really wanted to create an organisation that I could have built from from nothing to, to something and, and gave it and tried to be the best I could be at, at, at doing that. What sort of man am I going to be if I look at him and say, yeah, I wanted to do that, but actually, son, I just stuck with this thing and now you speak with an American accent and, and whatever else. And I didn't want to be that guy that by the time I got to 50, 60, that I looked back and thought, you'd never, you had this burning desire to do this thing and you never did it. You were you were scared to risk what you had. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not going to be that guy. There's times I wish I was, don't get me wrong. There was times in that journey where I think, God, you made the wrong choice. What are you doing? Uh, but yeah, so I think uh, there's a kind of personal thing there that's maybe self-indulgent. But going back to that entrepreneurship thing, I think you've got to have a burning desire to create something or solve something, and it's got to burn if you don't do it. Because if you, if you get into it just for the money, you know, you're never going to sustain the pain that's going to come your way. You just can't. It's impossible. I think your point around advice you'd give to entrepreneurs, I think Elon Musk said something similar recently, actually, and it was like, what would you... It was something like, for those entrepreneurs that are struggling, what would you sort of tell them to keep them going along or something? And he said, quit. Yeah. Because it was like, you, yeah, if it's not, it's not for you. If you're struggling, it's not for you. Like that's... Yeah, it's got to, it's got to, it's got to burn you in such a way that if somebody tells you to quit, it just sort of hunkers you down. You know, it makes you more belligerent to persist. There's got, you know, there was times, you know, we. When we were getting incremental set up, right, you know, we needed external investment to kind of kickstart the business. And there was times when it felt as if that was going to happen and you were super high. And then there was times it felt that it wasn't going to happen at all. And it was it was like the depths of despair. And, uh, you know, and, and we'd done some things and, and you know, in one situation with the people who we'd worked with and said, look, it's going to happen, we're going to get a deal closed, yeah, it's fine, and uh, two of them had resigned, right, and then the deal fell over, and I had nothing, and it, you know, I had two people who I think the world of, still, and I had to say to them both, look, I'm really sorry, I thought I had something, I didn't, and that's, I've never felt as sick Having to say that, like a deal falling over, me going back to Jill, my wife, and saying, "Well, you know, we're gonna have to sell the house." That was nowhere near as bad as, or at least in my mind at that point, as having to go to those people and say, "Yeah, look, this this isn't gonna happen. I'm sorry." But again, that didn't that didn't stop us persisting. You know, he just kept fighting and fighting and fighting, and I think that's the essence of entrepreneurship is such a burning desire to do something you will not be dissuaded uh, but yeah I think there's quite because there's some things here circling back to stuff that we've talked about in previous podcasts we did this a couple of episodes on 
meritocracy and some of the problems with meritocracy and the problem that one of the problems that emerges and gets worse when it actually sort of does work but we've because we've talked about essentially this idea that when you succeed you you tend to sort of trick yourself into thinking that it's of your own doing and that the luck kind of gets airbrushed out but then conversely you know we we discussed how at the other end of the spectrum you know, if you're not successful by whatever standards are set by society, whether it be financially, like uh, reputation, whatever, you internalize the failure and that kind of breeds this sort of, maybe breeds this emerging kind of class resentment that's going on, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that it circles back to a lot of that. And I wonder if, do you think your experiences in the sort of entrepreneurial labor that you've had to go through shape how you view business should be done now? And I know that's a very broad question for a lot of the specific questions that ads has. I don't know if I sort of like... That's uh, really good. Yeah. Is that shaped how you approach and think about it now and how you would act ethically or in regards to your business, et cetera, et cetera? I don't know is the honest answer to that. So the... Uh, there's a there's a guy I think I'll get to the point eventually. There's a there's a guy who a famous basketball coach in the US in the fifties sixties. I think he probably made it to the seventies. He's a guy called John Wooden, right? And John Wooden was a he was an an all American basketballer in the nineteen thirties, right? So Midwest Indiana kind of way, right? We walk better. The basketball and then basketball wasn't a professional sport so you couldn't make a living at it so even though he was one of the greatest of his generation he had to go and be an English teacher right and it, it, being an English teacher you know he, he, he tells this story and there's, there's TED talks and all that about this I'm sure people have seen it but it basically tells a story where he gets a bit frustrated with, with how people look at their kids and how well they're doing and if they're in the middle of the class or whatever and this leads him to redefine success. He's not happy with success being defined as winning and losing. And he redefines as, and I'll see if I can get this right, he says, uh, success is self-satisfaction gained from the knowledge that you achieved the most of which you are capable. Now, I'm not sure if I came to that before or after trying to start a business, but that thing, that definition of success has undoubtedly changed my outlook on life. The question then is, has that then affected how I do business? It must have. It must have. Because yeah, that maybe more as a father, and there's definitely relate there's definitely things about being a father and being a chief exec that are similar. Right? There's definitely that element to it. But, uh, yeah, it, it must have. Because I, I, I absolutely believe in that. That, that if, you, if, you, if you do everything you can do, you know, and, and work as hard as you can, and when I say hard, I don't just mean like effort. I mean intelligent effort. You apply your brain to things. You think hard. You think smart. All of those things. You do everything you can do. The score is what the score is. And you're going to have to satisfy yourself that that that's it. You, you you know you could put in the best thing you do, and you get beat. 
And if and if all you're worried about is then score, that, that's that that again, I think that's just a dangerous way to live your life. I think that's a really hard thing for most people to swallow, though, isn't it? That I don't think we're kind of built that way culturally, really. No. Well, certainly, certainly not in the UK, we're not. For a business perspective, we're not. And I think that's why I think there's a there's a kind of strange thing that I think gets misinterpreted here about entrepreneurship about you know can you keep failing this thing about failure being okay you know okay. I said that to you once actually I think you called me up on saying that I was like I'm happy yeah failure's that. shit bit my head it's crap you know this <laughs> idea that oh yeah there, but there's so many lessons you can learn tell that to the tell that to the guy who's went bankrupt during. Uh, during the lockdown, and he's you know his sandwich shops bust, or the or the or the, the florist, or you know <laughs> you know any anybody in the retail sector, you know the, the shop assistant has lost her job, you know the, the, that that failure, that, that's just you know the, the, there's some failures that you, I think I think it's the winning and losing thing people get confused with success. There's always good things to begin at success. Can you pick the bones out of failure? Yes, but there's usually less things to take. The, the difficulty is that I think it's harder to take the right things from success because it's like, you know, there's maybe 10 things, but remember, what, what ones are the things I should take forward? What ones are the things I should leave? People tend to think of success as a single thing. You know, it's like, well, everything I did must have been right, so take all of that. No, that's quite yeah. dangerous. Uh, failure, at least the mindset that says there may be some gems to pick here. At least that mindset is good because it lets you, lets you look at it and say, well, you know, maybe I failed because it wasn't my fault. So I, I do need to keep doing those things and tweak these other things. And maybe next time I just need a bit less luck. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, I think I think this almost acceptance or, or you know, acceptance of this failure thing or, or being okay with failure. I'm not a huge fan of, uh, but that's because I think I've redefined success and failure to suit my to suit my <laughs> objectives. <laughs> I mean, is it? I know this is big generalisation, perhaps, but you've talked about you know, ads has repeated something that Elon Musk said, just don't do it. You know, you've talked about I wouldn't do it. Going into business or being an entrepreneur, like, is there something? And I guess this, this will segue nicely into talking about actual kind of companies being integrated into the local area and hiring locally yeah. and stuff like that which is a very political thing to do and say right but i i, don't, I think I'll, I'll say with that you know that's i guess a lot of things yeah. that ads is prepared and stuff but i also wanted to ask the question to set that up do you think currently then that whether we whether we define this as uk or western or like a kind of i don't know capitalist consumer model whatever is the sort of entrepreneur world then at the moment, toxic. That's a good question. No, no more so than any other bit of our society just now. Mm. See, it's I wouldn't say it was an outlier in that regard, and I wouldn't say it was massively different than it had been. You know, it, it's that sort of classic thing. You know, that uh, the victors write history. You know, and I, and I think when you when you are successful there's a tendency to, you know, again, to take everything as like, well, well here's the success. Everything I did was right, you know. Uh, and there was no, there was no, 
there was no failures, there was no luck, there was so. But, but I think that's true in, in a lot of things. You know, I think if you you know you look back in the history books about how you know how Britain uh, and the Allies won the Second World War, why the Americans lost in Vietnam. You know, there's there's good points and bad points in them all, but but they're all kind of heaped to be this sort of well, that was a success, therefore everything that happened was kind of success. I think, yeah. that's a, I, think that's a, I think that's a standard thing to do. And equally, well, that was a failure, therefore everything was a failure. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's right. But yeah, I don't, I don't think it's toxic. I think it's, I think it's fashionable and trendy in a way that I don't think's helpful. Because I think it's, I think it's sort of portrayed as being. Yeah, it's sort of portrayed as being hip and cool and something every everybody should aspire to. Just now, and, it's, and I just think that's I just think that's wrong. I, I just don't think that's right. I think it's interesting that it's something I've noticed recently. So there's a lot of like chat about entrepreneurship, and you said it is more popular, it's more trendy. You see like Reddit forums going up and yeah. people on Twitter and. That the idea of the entrepreneur as well, these kind of people that really that feed off of reading all the books and stuff about it, but never do anything. So you look <laughs> up, look up entrepreneur. That's a really it's a really interesting yeah. like topic yeah. that people talk about. But yeah. I wonder, is it a generational thing as well, right? Because I've not really got any ideas on this, but you see more and more of it. And actually, like the, the thing that triggered all this thought for me was there's a new. I think it's a Disney like you know these kind of like young teen dramas the comedy dramas that go on with like things like um hannah montana right there's one of them that's just being advertised at the moment called side hustle and it's about a load of like young teenagers trying to start yeah. side businesses to make extra money and it's, <laughs> is that just because i think that's quite absurd if you go back 20 years that's quite an absurd idea actually <laughs> is that just becoming the norm that you won't make enough money through your career so you, you've got to go and do something else what I think there's I think there's maybe two things that play there, right? So so there there is a there is a change in how big and how long companies exist, right? You know, and there's a, there's a kind of strange there's a strange thing just now where uh, the scale of a business is somehow determined by its value rather than the the actual physical number of people involved, right? So I remember looking at, you know, the, the example I would say is Instagram, right? Instagram was this, you know, well, huge thing, still is a huge thing. But when they sold to Facebook, I want to say they had less than 20 employees, there was less than 20 people built that thing. And, and from an engineering perspective, I'm, I'm a computer scientist to trade, back in the day, programmer. Uh, you know, it's not a big thing. You know, it's not, and I'm, I'm generalising here, but it's not the technically most complicated bit of software in the world, you know? Most of mm -hmm. the stuff is pretty bog standard. It's a, it's a terrific idea that then got real traction and executed brilliantly on it, but it's not, it's not a big thing. You know, it didn't create 60,000 jobs mm -hmm. and pay for, you know, 
60,000 families mortgages and pay for 60,000, you know, sets of kids to go to college or university or, you know, it, it didn't have that impact. Uh, but somehow in people's minds, it's this huge thing. And I think that that's quite a strange phenomenon. And, and that is bringing about, I think, this sort of sense of you can create these huge businesses and you can do them overnight, and you can, but, but they're no huge businesses. They're huge valuations. Mm. But they're not, you know, I, mm. I, I try to remember that if you look at the what Facebook paid for Instagram and you take that as a market capitalization and apply it to the FTSE or, or even the, you know, the FTSE 250, say, you're going to hit a number of organizations who have a much bigger impact uh, on the wider economy than, than Instagram ever did. And that's quite, and, and, that, and I don't mean that in the sense of uh, Instagram, the platform, you know, and what that's changed in terms of, you know, social media and how people monetize social media and influence that. Don't mean any of that stuff. I just mean as a company that made our product, what influence has it had as that company, not its product? What influence has it had? Not a great deal. Maybe, maybe 15 people made a huge amount of money. But that was it. They had nothing else. And that, that's kind of interesting to me. And that, that, I suppose, segues into the local thing, right? Yeah, so I was going to ask that then. Yeah. Yeah, and you go, Adam, sorry. So, yeah, no, yeah, so the question I'd kind of posed was, yeah, do you think then on that impact point of view, it's kind of slightly different, but do you think local first should be a priority then for organisations like this? And, and is it actually about maximising impact? Yeah, so... The, lo the local things become really interesting, right, for me just now because uh, well, we're all working from home, right? Mm. And actually, we're okay, is it is it as good an interaction, say, Simon, if you and I had met, say, in Bar 91 in the Merchant City, would that be a better way for us to get to know one another? Undoubtedly. I think all the research would suggest the level of trust you can build face-to-face -face is greater than that. But... It's definitely, it, it, sh it shifted my views to what local actually means. So, you know, traditionally, well, not traditionally, when we first started incremental, I was very, I was very focused on the local, right? And the local being the geographic local. And that being because what, what I've done for most of my career is software engineering consultancy, right? So it's really professional services. The, the, the rate determining step there is how quickly you can understand the business problem at hand. And that usually requires direct face-to-face -face interaction and discussion, right? That, that's, that's the gig. It's how well you can communicate that determines how good a quality solution you can put in place, as well as diversity of thought and all those other things. But, the, but that's a big part of it, right? So when it came round to thinking, you know, which sort of business did we want to create? We wanted to create a business that was best at that bit, right? Because that's the hard bit. You know, the tech bit's difficult, but what you find with, with technologists or people who are interested in technology, they will happily whittle away the hours, by and large, 
getting really good at the tech bit. The bit that's really hard is the consulting bit, the talking bit, the listening bit, most importantly. And that's always best done face-to-face, right? What the pandemic's done... So, so yeah, so, so my mind was always... We were never going to offshore anything, ever, right? Because, you know, it's no... And it's nothing to do with levels of intelligence, you know, or quality of education or any of that stuff that's sometimes bandied about and there's a lot of prejudice, particularly from whether it's the subcontinent or even Far East Asia now, or even Eastern Europe, actually. You know, just about the quality of the programmers or the quality of technology she gets. Like, every bit is good. Never had a, I never had an issue with that. It's how well you can communicate that's the real challenge. And... and Physical distance, a social differences about cultural differences yeah. is what I mean. Time range differences, all of the, all of those things, just are little barriers that get in the way. Then if there's some sort of shared commonality between people, you, you just don't have. So that that was what drove my desire to be local. I suppose initially, there was then this point about well. You know, if you're going to create, you know, ultimately you want to build something, right? You want to build something you can be proud of. You want to earn a bit of cash out of it, of course. But you, you ultimately want to build something that, that's going to solve people's problems. And you want to solve those problems as best as you can. So that all kind of wrapped up into this desire to be local and contribute to the, you know, people that I could see and I could, you know, if I created jobs and long-term careers for people, it would help them pay their mortgages and put their kids through school and, and whatever. The pandemic's, I think, forcing a bit of a, a rethink there because it's, well, what is local, right? Mm-hmm. The pandemic's not going to be here forever, but well, what, what does local mean? Does local mean that we can we can communicate regularly, we can talk? You know, that's the thing, I've not got an answer for that, but yeah. I've always been really passionate about the local because I like being able to see and, and feel very connected to the physical environment I'm in, but the pandemic's forced us all into this kind of virtual world, and it's made me... I'm questioning quite a lot just now about what local actually means. Because I think there's a... I'm not an expert on this at all. There's this concept of a diaspora, right? And it, it doesn't really matter. If it, you know, it's like... Uh, I'll speak as a Scotsman on the call. You know, there's this thing about... You know, you're Scottish no matter where you go, Right? And so if you bump into a Scotsman, you could be in Akihabara in Tokyo. You know, there's an instant... Uh, so that there's, I suspect what local really means for me is some sort of connected diaspora and the physical location's probably not the really important thing. Which is quite... Hmm. I don't know what that means philosophically. I was quite, it's quite interesting because it reminds me of a, uh, a seminar a few weeks back where... You know, we were talking about the idea of shared shared values or shared belief or shared shared experiences. Uh, this is something that went back to the Mark Sandel episode. It's one of these criticisms he has of a kind of modern, uh, I guess, a modern society where, like, capitalism isn't just the free market is not just a tool that we access, but it also dictates social relations. So he he goes on about you know when he was a young lad, he used to go and watch the football. 
And generally, you could get better seats, but everybody, if it rains, you know, everybody got wet. Everybody drank the same stale, crappy beer, ate the same crappy hot dog, right? So it kind of was a class-mixing exercise. And you contrast that today where, you know, you've got this... And it makes me think of airports. You know, if you were talking to someone, some sort of super rich elite, I guess, the experience of travelling is totally different, right? It's not stressful. You don't wait in queues. You don't sit in a little kind of... Yeah. And it's important. Losing these shared experiences is quite damaging. So I guess that I, I, the, the local is interesting to think about that you would have shared experiences because of some, yeah, I guess, cultural similarities and stuff. But I also feel like what seems to cut across that today is generational differences. I don't know if... Like they seem to be more pronounced. Like, I think in a lot of situations, I, I would find myself having more in common with someone sort of my own age than necessarily someone who is living right right next door to me. Right. So it's there's so many different ways that we can find connections and disconnections. It just sort of made me think about that a little. Yeah, bit. It's, it's it's funny because there's a so. The, the change in media, this is a bit off topic, I suppose, the, the, but it has to do with a sense of community, I suppose. Local and community, I suppose, is like, mm. they're all intertwined. But I certainly find myself now in the, having these, almost like communities of interest that kind of yes. you, you, you float around in. So I've got a thing about watches. I love watches, right? But basically speaking, outside of the tech thing and football and all the usual guff, I like watches, I like motors, specifically a German brand of car who I have a bit of a challenge with on a personal basis, but anyway. Uh, and I quite like cigars, so there's only so many cliches a middle-aged CEO can fall in here. So what I found is, so there's a set of podcasts I end up listening to, right? Yeah. So, uh, there's the Hedinki one, there's another one called Worn and Wound, there's one uh, about cars by a guy called Spike Ferriston who used to write for Seinfeld. What you find is there's all these same people keep appearing. It's like they all turn up in the other's podcast and, and there's probably only like, I don't know, 15 people in the world that revolve around these things in your mm. mind. So I, I find myself, right, so, so the, the classic example of community or localness, right, is there was a a watch got released about a month and a half ago, right? And I shit you not, that watch was everywhere I went. I could not escape it. For a month, it was everywhere. It was, and I don't just mean an adverse. I mean, the podcasts I listened to, it's all they spoke about. The YouTube videos that get recommended to me, which I suppose are adverts, it was there. It was like, and you find yourself in these little echo chambers yeah. of interest. And obviously that, you know, you see the political ramifications for that and for democracy and all that. But yeah, but somehow for me, there's something about the local and all that. It's like, how does that fit? I don't, I don't quite know. So that's quite, that actually touches on something you said, Si, just before we started recording 
about potential guests for coming up. We've had this conversation a few times. And so Si and I have a shared interest. And actually, people from the, that we know from that also keep coming up as potential. Oh, we could get them on. We could get them on. Okay. And it is that localness. And it's like, like I've not lived next to Si or anywhere near Si for probably 15, 18 years or something. But... No, I completely get that. That kind of that 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 community and the data the data community is really bad for that as well. Bad for it, but that's a real truism of the data community. There's a core of people that, and they do. If you watch like any two sets of YouTube channels or podcasts, they, they trade shows and things like that. It just seems to be be the way it's done. So, so yes, I think I think where I'm getting to know this is I think you want to be in as many communities as you can be, as many mm. different communities. It's interesting. So I think so. so I think you know, you spoke about football, Simon, earlier on. You know, the, the shared experience. So if if the only thing I was interested in was cars and watches, mm. I'm screwed to be the most boring and insulated man in history, which I may well be, right? But going to the fit bar and having that circle where there's a commonality around going to Fur Park. So I'm a Motherwell fan for my my sins in a previous life, clearly. Uh, they, you know, but the, the the group of the group of people there, there's a commonality. You know, we all think the same thing about our old manager. We all think that certain players are no try the leg all season. So there's there's that, and I think if you you need to be in lots of different communities. I think th- yeah, and this is really interesting because the the word community, you know, it was something that was kind of sort of went out of fashion a bit, you know, with the eighties and the hyper individualism and stuff like that. Yeah. And now it's got a resurgence, but it's like you, you've made that phrase, a community of interest, and that all kind of seems to me to go hand in hand with online communities and all that stuff opening up. Because you can also discover stuff, right, that you just, is so niche that you never would have come across. Right. And there's, I feel like there's a, but there is, a, yeah, it's not like it's bad or good. It's a challenge because there are challenges to this because all of that's great, right? Like, are, are we... Um, Ads and I do live action role play. It's a massive nerd ho- hobby, right? And it's a lot of the time it's online, and you you yeah. want to share that stuff with someone, and they're not typically in your neighbourhood, right? Uh-huh. But equally, like, there's a loss with the disembodied community. There's a loss, right? At the same time, you've also mentioned the political ramifications. Just as I can go and look up historical European martial arts and get really nerdy excited and buy a sword, which I did last week, um, <laughs> I can also okay. go. Oh, do you know what? Um, I, I, I think the Confederate flag isn't that bad. Let's look up some sort of white supremacist group, right? So, so there is these challenges with it. Uh, it's quite interesting to think about that, yeah. There's obviously, like, a tipping point where you kind of lose, I suppose, you're saying you want to be in as many communities as possible, but then obviously maybe there's, there is a challenge with some of that. And when it, there's a scale point for an organisation, for a business, yeah, yeah. where you, do you lose control and do do like large organisations or should large organisations play a different role in local or communities than than startups? So I think, yeah, okay, right. So let me come at that. So I'll come back to that sense of you know, regardless of local, I think, and this is hard to do, especially for smaller businesses because you can be quite. Your attention, your attention can only be on so many things, and, and scale means that you need to be focused on fewer things. You know, the smaller you are, the, the sharper your focus has got to be. I think there is a there is a kind of moral challenge for all businesses to be a positive influence 
for the people with it it's that are part of it. So if I think about social sustainability, right, which is a, a kind of buzz phrase just now, social sustainability for me is about being a positive influence in people's lives. The people who work in the organisation, you want to be a positive in their lives. Okay, you, you either want to provide fulfilling work or help them to develop to be, you know, it's back to that thing about what is success, reaching the limit of your potential, you know, that that's success. And if, if, if you're creating a business, ultimately you want people to see people do that, right? You know, that there, there is an economic factor in that for the business, but, the, you know, there's a, there's a social factor as well, and it, it's just a nice thing to do. And, and economic benefit comes, typically, in my experience, to doing things that are nice things to do. So I think I, I, that's the first thing I would say. The other thing I would say is that this thing about can larger companies do it? Should, should larger companies play a bigger part in it? Again, it depends on your it depends on your view of scale and what does scale really mean. If I say social sustainability is about the impact you have on the people's lives that you're touching, uh, then larger organisations by their very when I say large, I mean in terms of employee base. They will touch more people, so they will have a greater influence in the general society. You know, by the time you're down at an Instagram level and you've got 15 people, you know, your, your impact on societies, despite the the excitement of their product, is, is negligible, right? So, yeah, I think... I, I don't think the onus is on... I, I wouldn't worry about the scale of the organisation. I, I think your starting point is trying to be a positive influence for the people that you employ. That that to me is the that to me is the root of everything in terms of your your kind of impact on the wider economy, but more just the social side of that equation. That, that kind of challenges the evil businessman trying to crush as much efficiency out of the workforce as possible kind of idea. Do you think that that there is an economic benefit then to like you said economic benefits follow doing nice things? Do you think that is actually an advantage over the other way, like that that kind of very I've never I've never been in an organization that went out its way to treat people badly. And and I've I've worked I could argue I worked for one of the most morally dubious corporations in the planet. But they treated their people very, very well. You know, I, I get treated brilliantly when I worked for that organisation. But the things that they do, you, you need to be a wee bit careful about reconciling. Well, if they're in a defence business, you know, it's quite a... You know, the, the, fact that, the fact that the share price goes up when a war starts, it's not great, <laughs> you know, I'm really sure I'm contributing to the, the, the good of mankind here. Uh, but in terms of the, the the impact on what I would define as the communities in which they interact as a as a business, I'd say they did very well because they, they provided a place where people were valued. And and people I think I think back in the day where you had what what it was essentially manual labour, the object of the exercise was efficiency in terms of brute force efficiency. And there was a negligible understanding of what that took, right? It was like, well, 14-hour days, I must get, you know, it was like almost like childlike, I must get more work in 14 hours than I will in 10. 
right? But in the knowledge economy, well, that's no, that's no as obvious, and, and I think there's, there's, mm. you know, legitimate things that say, well, that's not how it works, and you need to treat people well to to allow them to be most effective and most efficient, right? So that's what I mean. It's like it, when when people are your when people are your resource, you need to understand what motivates and maintains and allows people to be productive, right? And treating people with shit typically doesn't make them very productive. Seems to me we basically sort of ended up talking about kind of corporate responsibility in a lot of ways. And it's interesting mm. you use that word resource because that's the thing, isn't it? Like employees, you know, being the difference between treated as a cost to a company and a resource to a company is is obviously like an important distinction. But we've also talked around, yeah, I guess... Well, I, I just kind of want to ask this question now, considering the things that we've said, right? And I know that ads also wanted to ask about the sort of gender imbalance within mm. the tech industry. So I guess it ties up with that, although it isn't that question. But yeah. just provoke this, with what you two have been saying, what role, if any, do businesses have in campaigns for social justice? Uh, I, yeah, that's a good question. As an entity, I don't think any direct influence actually. Uh, uh, I'm not sure I can say that. It needs to be very directly related to the entity, right? It needs to be like a direct interaction that it has. I think, I don't know the answer to that, Simon, actually. Did you see the, I was going to say, did you see the Burger King Twitter thing? No. Yeah, that's right. So Burger King on Monday, International Women's Day, posted a thread on Twitter that was about announcing their new program, which is to encourage women to take up jobs in, in the kitchen because actually it's massively dominated by men, very few female chefs. Yeah, so. yeah. But they put it on Twitter, and the way Twitter works, if you put threads, it cuts posts. Like, so the first, and it was to be provocative, but the first post set, just said... Women belong in the kitchen, and then yeah, followed by the off. announcement. Yeah. And it was, and it's well intentioned, but just <laughs> because of the because it doesn't show the rest of the thread. Obviously, this huge one never attracted it. So that I think that's that's quite a good example because you said they have to have a direct impact. Well, they do. They're funding something that's related to their business, and it's it's yeah. a positive thing. But they've. They've signalled it in a very bad way. So it's a, that's a very topical yeah. And, and a, a world of one hundred and forty-four characters. That it's difficult to put the nuance there and get and get the irony of what you're trying to, uh, or the, the sarcasm of what you're trying to say. Uh, yeah, I don't. It's interesting. So, so there's things that, you know, for example, right. If, if I take two topics just now, so gender, right, and and that position and gender pay gap and how many how many women come into the tech sector uh, you know businesses and technology have yeah I think they've got a, I think they've got a, I think they've got a, something of a moral obligation to do the right thing there uh, yeah but then, you know, do, do we have the right to speak out on topics such as, uh, you know, Boris Johnston's handling of the COVID pandemic as a business? 
do we, you know, should we speak out on that? I, I, I don't think we should. Should we speak out on gender inequality as an organisation? Well, yeah, because, it, yeah, I think we probably should. I, I find it really difficult, actually, to draw a nice, easy line about where yeah. you should yeah. and where you shouldn't go. Uh, I know that there's, you know, International Women's Day, you know, there's people in incremental feel passionately about that, uh, you know, and so that's a thing that the business allows. Would would I allow us to get dragged into a debate about whether or not Matt Hancock has spent money wisely on track and trace? Probably best shied away from. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's difficult, and I, I think, yeah, I can't, I can't come up with an easy, obvious answer as to when it's right and when it's not. I think there's places where perhaps we just feel that there is a moral obligation, but you can need to take that on a case by case basis. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that I think the answer is still there. Yeah, it's still emerging, isn't it? What are those lines? Well, we don't we don't necessarily know because it's all tied up with well, what is a company? How do we view a company? You know, is a company like you know we get told it's a family a lot, right? Is it? You know, you're making statements on behalf of other people as well. Like, yeah. it's all very complicated. And the only reason I asked is because it seems to be such a thing at the moment, right? I mean, I was thinking, like, the Gillette advert, right? And is that direct connection? Because it's like, well, Gillette raises for men. So let's, like, let's talk <laughs> about toxic masculinity. And they did that advert, right? So there was this yeah. kind of, I guess there was this connection around it. But I'm also really interested... Uh, there's a philosopher called Stavov Zizek who talks about the idea that charity now is wrapped up in the act of consumption. They're not two separate activities anymore, which is really interesting because we actually... So you think about this in terms of something like fair trade or organic stuff. We purchase the... We, what we're actually doing is purchasing the, the charitable act and paying for it within the act of consumption. So we're buying that feel-good feeling, right? And it sort of veils the structural problems that are going on around it I sort of gone off from one a bit there, but I said, yeah. that's not, I, that's... I, I guess. no, surely not. <laughs> I, I get it, not yet. So it's, but it's something that's big at the moment, isn't it? Like, it seems See, to be. Yeah, there was a, there was a, right, and I don't, I don't know where this is going, but it's popped into my head, it's been relevant. So, I want to say two years ago or something, I think it was two years ago, uh, we were at a Microsoft conference, myself and one of my one of my co-founders in the business. We in the, it was in Las Vegas, den of inequity. So we trip over, uh, spend a few days in LA, great time, and then go to Las Vegas. Uh, and an American muscle car, hired an American muscle car, drove it. was brilliant. If you ever get a chance to do that, brilliant. Suspension was terrible. It drove like a boat, but it was great. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we get to that. Anyway, so we, we get to the, the keynote slightly hungover, uh, and Sachin Adele is there, the, the chief executive of Microsoft, leader of Microsoft. And there's a discussion about data and data protection. And during the, during the thing, right, Microsoft. Microsoft was coming under pressure by certain nation states to essentially hand over data that it considered to be private, to be citizens' private data, their customers, let's give it the proper word, their customers' private data, and they were not 
they did not think it appropriate that they hand it over to nation states. And they come out, and I, I remember, I remember thinking, this is like the time, So what he said, he basically said, look, uh, we are not going to hand, we're going to fight to ensure that your data remains private, right? As Microsoft, we're going to fight against these nation states, and we're going to say, no, we're not going to give your data, and we're going to fight them for it, right? We're, we're just not going to hand this stuff over, right? That, CIA, FBI, whoever it is in Russia or whatever, right? We're going to fight this. And the room applauds. I'm going to cheers. Yeah, yeah, because we are the nation of Microsoft at that point, right? We are the community of Microsoft. We are the locality of Microsoft, right? And we, but you suddenly realise it's like, oh, wait a minute. When a company stands up and says, we will not listen to nation states. All right, that that feels like quite a big Rubicon you've crossed. That thing about what is a company, I, I think that's the link here. Is I suddenly thought, shit, I'm I, I'm not really sure that my understanding of what I, I think I I think I done I think like everybody I think you think of countries as perhaps more solid I think than they really are and actually they're just a sort of social construct they're just a community that's got certain shared narratives and certain shared beliefs companies and Microsoft's done quite a good job of this of it being not just their employees but their customers and their partners there's a community there of shared beliefs of shared it and so they can act in similar ways to nation states but it was the first time I'd heard a company come out and openly say we are going to stand against nation states here and it was like wow what a thing and then of course you ended up with Apple doing a similar thing when they were getting challenged to release the, you know to, to to hand over the password to crack the iPhone mm, yeah, I was say that. Facebook have been I've got a similar challenge with WhatsApp and, and opening that up you know it, it, it's quite an interesting you know an interesting development because these businesses are now these organizations are so big and so influential to all intents and purposes they are as influential as nation states yeah there's a really interesting book which i won't, I don't, won't go into detail right now because it opens up a whole other thing but uh, just in case our interest listeners are interested in that kind of thing it's got only a couple of years old it's a book by uh, a philosopher called elizabeth anderson uh, it's called private companies why they how they control our lives and why we don't talk about it. And she basically asks us to think about companies and how they function internally, right? And how they choose who runs them and what your rights are within them, etc., etc. And the influence they have over your life as nation states. Because we're hypercritical of the power that nation states wield over us, right? We're always looking, oh, this is infringement upon my freedom, blah, blah, blah. But she kind of claims that we're sort of walking around like this, one eye closed, because now we've got these super entities that have the power to... And so, well, I talk about this to my students. One of my students was saying, yeah, when you work for Tesco, you can't actually criticise Tesco on your Facebook. Now, and I always say, well, imagine if that was like your local council or, or the, the country you lived in, right? That's, a, that's an impediment upon your freedom of speech, right? It's so entrenched that we don't think about this. And I know, I know having relationships in the workplace causes certain issues and there's power things to, to work out and stuff like that. 
But imagine if your local councillor or local MP got to call you into their office and say, are you having a relationship with someone who lives down your street? You know, what's going on with that? Like, <laughs> I, and I know the analogy might not be exactly the same, but I do think it's interesting the move to maybe think about companies in a, in a new way, which isn't so dissimilar to the way that we think about nation states, because they wield such power now. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think the, 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 those, certainly the, the four, you know, Google, Apple, Facebook, uh, Microsoft, those four corporations that, you know, essentially the modern world runs on those, on those four, four organisations. And Simon, you've probably read it, but there's a great book by a guy called Scott Galloway, and he paints this picture where he says he positions he positions the four as essentially four gods, or four basic human instincts. And so he says that Amazon is as greed as consumption, right? It's hunger, is is that desire to consume? Uh, he talks about Google as God, the the all seeing, all knowing, omnipotent presence. Uh, he talks about Facebook as what's, what's Facebook again? Vanity, I think. Friendship, maybe. Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's love. I think he says it's love, and then Apple, uh, he calls sex. That's really interesting, yeah. That is really so it it paints this picture of you know that this you know in the in today's society, the way that you signal that your good DNA is by whacking your iPhone on the desk. <laughs> there you go. Have a bit of can that. You, can you Look make it? I'm good DNA. Please meet. <laughs> I've got an iPhone. You know, it's a great. It's a great. Uh, sorry, my predilection for Microsoft when they categorise them as one of the four, they're not. Uh, so it's Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. That's the Amazon. four. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, yeah, the, the world runs on those four companies now. Yeah, that is quite interesting as well to think about in those ways. Uh, I'm sure that I mean that sounds a little bit like American gods. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it was probably influenced by gaming's work actually. The yeah. book's worth the read. The boy Galloway is quite interesting too. He does an interesting podcast with a very clever a uh, journalist called Cara Swisher, uh, and they do some they do some really interesting stuff. And she she's the sort of journalist that uh, she doesn't give a you know favor. To any of those big tech guys, because she remembers them when they weren't those big tech guys. She remembers them when there were guys going about with a begging bowl asking for some investment. You know, she remembers them when they were those people, and she's terrific. But yeah, I mean, I think the company thing, and and the, the just come back to that social impact and moral obligations and stuff. I think it's changing. I think it's really difficult. And, and as a leader of of an organisation, we are lucky in that. I think what's expected of us really comes from, you know, a, a relatively small range of customers, you know, compared to the likes of a Google. And, you know, we employ just now just shy of 200 people. 
So, you know, it's a much smaller cohort. By the time you have, you know, I, I don't know how many customers or interactions Google will have or how many, you know, Amazon has, but by the time you're at that sort of scale, you are at nation-state scale, and so I suspect mm-hmm. society's expectations of that organisation from a moral perspective change pretty dramatically. Just now, I think it's enough for us to be, you know, support the things that our people believe in and are passionate about, but there's no huge expectation for us to take a moral stand on the rights of, you know, privacy rights for citizens against nation states. There's no expectation for that yet, but there may well be. That was really interesting. Got any final thoughts, Ads? No, yeah, I thought there's a lot, a lot covered there. I think we've we've come, we've gone from, yeah, sort of local through right through to actually impact. Like, what impact does do organisations have? And it's, it's been a really interesting, yeah, it's been a lot to think about in that. Um, I was going to ask actually. So, yeah, recently appointed to Strathclyde Business School as senior yeah. entrepreneurship fellow. What's that going to entail? What how, what's that actually mean? What? Well, I think for, for it's kind of interesting because when it, it was initially played to me, I said yes before I knew what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a tendency to do that. Uh, so what it's going to mean for me is helping the university develop, implement uh, its entrepreneurship strategy. And that's really about giving students the skills the, the knowledge, the awareness, understanding of what it is to be an entrepreneur, all the good things, puncture some of the, you know, some of the pomposity and rise about it and actually get to the, you know, the, the brass tacks. For me, uh, my focus is going to be on helping businesses become investor ready okay, and helping businesses get their head around that because my experience is that, uh, you know, Businesses, tech businesses in particular, which is obviously where my my kind of background is, but the tech bit they tend to do really well. Uh, the bits that they don't do so well, you know, operational excellence, financial stuff, all the rest of it, uh, those tend to be kind of second secondary concerns. And whilst there's many things that incremental could improve on. I think a thing that we've done quite well is in terms of how we've financially managed the business, largely down to our CFO, largely down to Stuart, Stuart Kerr, uh, and the work that he's put in. Uh, but actually helping helping startups get ready for that is where I'm going to be where I'm going to be helping. And to be fair, it's probably the easiest bit because it's the most brass tax bit about it. <laughs> tell me how tell me how you're going to make money and no blow all the money I give you, please. <laughs> but that's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it's almost like, especially techies, we're kind of allergic to asking for money or that just that <laughs> side of it. Don't want to think about, but it's a ne- it's a necessary part of many organisations' lifespan. Aye, but I think it comes to a place about it's like most techies don't like selling. Yeah, but I think that's because people misunderstand what selling is. When it's done properly, selling is about helping people. Right? And if you're good at something and you think what you do can help that other person, you've kind of got a duty to go and try and help them. Right? Whether they like it or not. What's that, Adam? Whether they like it or not. Well, but you should, if they don't like it, they can tell you to bugger off. That's fine. But 
but you should, you should, if you genuinely believe that you can positively affect them or their organisation, whatever, that, that's there's not that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to do that. And, and, and similarly, if you believe in what you're trying to do, and you know you think, well, I can if I get the scale here, I can help more people. Then yeah, asking for money that's just a natural part of it. Plus, it's kind of always better to spend somebody else's money, <laughs> <laughs> especially those uh, venture capital guys. They've got hundreds of money. <laughs> Let's give it to some budding entrepreneurs and see if we can change the world. All right. So, uh, always ask: Is there anything you'd like to plug, or anything we think we've missed? But other than. Uh, any businesses that need an ERP, a CRM, or any digital transformation products, come incremental group. Uh, but no, apart from that, no, look, really enjoyed the chat, guys. Hopefully it's not been too esoteric. Uh, but yeah, really interesting topic. So no, thanks very much, Adam, for having me along. Thanks. Well, I'm, I'm just glad that we talked about you can do everything right, but luck can just have a role in you not being successful because that goes a long way to explaining why the best folk rock band that ever existed <laughs> never never made it so we introduced si- si- for many of the people that don't know Simon was in a band once I just didn't you just didn't quite you weren't playing King Touch Baba Hot when Alan McGee was having to be in being his sister that just didn't happen for you he got to those 50 points perfect but <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I heard you got to three points. I, I hate to tell you, <laughs> you were needing a lot of luck. Was what I was told. And three of those points were nothing to do with me. I was just a singer. So. <laughs> oh, jeez, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, do you know what? I'm actually just really glad that we've broken our curse of super, super bleak topics that leave me depressed. So the last three episodes have been on some really tough stuff. So. We're back to changing the world here, so I'm happy with that. Good stuff. Yeah, cool. All right, guys. Thanks very much. Good to meet you both. Thank you very much. Cheers, folks. Bye-bye.